Welcome back to another episode of By Study and By Faith, where we take a look at critical thinking skills and apply them to LDS theology and history. I'm Zach Wright, and we've got some exciting stuff to go over today. Before we launch into that, though, I would like to make one plug. You ha um, Recently, we had the Book of Mormon, uh, Defending the Book of Mormon Conference, and it was, it was super exciting. I actually got to participate as one of the hosts. Uh, one of the one of the episodes up now, I'm talking to Matthew Roper, who has done extensive research into Mesoamerican archaeology, and I get to ask I get to ask him a couple of questions. It was a lot of fun. It was nice to be able to to chat with some of these people who are super smart and well informed, and I thought their comments were very insightful. So I'll um I'll see what I can do about putting up a link so you can kind of take a look at that, but. Uh, definitely take a look at a lot of the videos that Ferris is going to be putting out about the Defending the Book of Mormon conference. Lots of really great material there. I hope you find it as exciting and as informative as I did. It was just all around awesome, 10 out of 10. But I think that's about all the that's about all the intro stuff that I had. Uh, so we'll just go ahead and launch right into it. So imagine for yourself that you're face to face with a critic of the church who states that the church is lying to you about its history, or the church is trying to cover up its past. When you ask them what they mean, they, they explain how the church has suppressed details about how the seers, how Joseph Smith used a seer stone throughout the translation of the Book of Mormon. And they continue, it's only until the advent of the internet that the church has been forced to be honest. What the critic in this case does not know is that for the most part, that claim is well, misinformation. And the unfortunate reality is that misinformation really can be spread as simply as that kind of example. And despite how simply it can be spread, it can also have some devastating consequences. Now, the vast majority of this series has been dedicated to arriving at correct conclusions. And I've mostly talked about how we should use the data to build our own arguments and arrived at well-reasoned conclusions. However, besides my episode on logical fallacies, I haven't really given all that much time to talking about bad information. I, I, I've kind of alluded to the idea of there being bad information out there and that we should protect ourselves from it, but I haven't really talked about examples of what misinformation and other kinds of misleading information might look like. In other words, I, I've been working under the assumption so far that all the information that we're taking in is 100% accurate. In reality, as you all probably know, that's not always the case. Reality is often complicated and the manner in which data is presented can be biased or otherwise be presented in a way that can incorrectly sway our opinion or mislead us. And we as critical thinkers need to be aware of such information and find ways to inoculate ourselves against it so that we can more easily arrive at correct conclusions and not be misled. To start, we'll discuss kind of what misinformation is and talk about how it can be combated a little bit later. And we'll, do, we'll, we'll talk about propaganda in a similar way. And at the end, we'll kind of summarize all the ways we can protect ourselves against it. And we'll just kind of wrap up there. But besides that, 
let's just get into it. So before we can launch into describing other forms of misleading information, it's important that we talk about what misinformation is. So misinformation is described as, uh, quote, incorrect or misleading information, close quote. And, and this kind of information serves critical thinkers very little good because what we as critical thinkers are trying to do is we're trying to solve problems in reality. And misinformation does not contain data points that coincide with reality. And so we're not able to use that information very well to solve the problems that we find in reality. And so we as critical thinkers should find ways to protect ourselves from bad information so that we can use good information to solve problems and try and make a difference in the world. I mean, if we don't understand the reality of a problem, then when we create solutions, they're not going to do all that much to solve the problem and we run the risk of implementing ineffective solutions. And it's important to keep that in mind as we proceed through the sources that we encounter. So let's jump back to the example in the introduction. We had a critic who made the claim that the church was actively hiding the fact that Joseph used a seer stone during the translation process of the Book of Mormon. If this was true, then the members of the church who wanted to explain what happened during the Book of Mormon translation process would not only need to explain why Joseph used the seer stone, but also why the church was hiding it. It changes the nature of the discussion significantly. In other words, those kinds of details would need to be factored into whatever analysis or explanation we give for the data we find. However, is it true that the church actually hid the details about the translation process? Well, from what I found, the, the answer is a little bit complicated, but overall it's pretty universally no. For example, we have records of David Whitmer, a, a witness of the translation process, recording during his lifetime that Joseph Smith used the seer stone during the translation process. And we also have other witnesses, such as Joseph Smith's first wife, Emma, uh, another direct witness of the translation, indicating that he, Joseph Smith used the seer stone as well. This is where things kind of get tricky, though, because both of those sources are rather late. They were recorded decades after the fact. And if you remember my, my article about evaluating historical sources, you, you'll remember that this makes those sources a uh, at least a little bit less reliable than maybe if they were recorded earlier. And this led some members and leaders of the church to disbelieve the idea that Joseph Smith used a seer stone. So for, for example, we have Joseph Fielding Smith, who was one of the presidents of the church and was a church historian for a number of years, he knew the idea that Joseph had the seer stone, and he wrote about it, but he didn't believe that it was used during the Book of Mormon translation process. And it's arguable that that sentiment and that idea, um, that, that kind of rhetoric, dominated a lot of the discussion at the time. But you also have to take into account that this certainly wasn't the only and unanimous opinion of the 1900s. Uh, several years later, um, we have records of historians such as Richard Lloyd Anderson, alongside apostles such as Neil A. Maxwell, and uh, now current president of the church, Russell M. Nelson, who affirmed the idea that Joseph used a seer stone in the hat during the translation process of the Book of Mormon. 
So as you can as you can imagine, there's far more nuance behind this discussion than just saying the church lied about it or was trying to cover it up. I mean, if we think about this for a minute, is it really fair to say that the church as an organization was actively trying to hide the idea Joseph used a seer stone, especially in a manipulative or dismissive way? I mean, we have multiple general authorities affirming the idea that Joseph Smith used the seer stone during a portion of the Book of Mormon's translation process. And we find this recorded in multiple outlets, uh, such as the Enzyme, which is a magazine that was available to the church membership at large. I, I mean, was that detail contested? Sure, but that's very different from saying that the church was actively, knowingly, and deceptively lying to hide the issue from the general membership. Even so, we, we happen to see this issue rehashed by critics of the church time and time again, despite the claims at least misleading nature, if not outrightly untrue. Before we move on, I think it's worth noting that there's some distinction to be made between misinformation and its more devious cousin, disinformation. Uh, disinformation is described as false information deliberately and often covertly spread, as by the planting of rumors, in order to influence public opinion or obscure the truth. Uh, to, to put it another way, misinformation is just information that's incorrect, whereas disinformation is the intentional use of incorrect information. Um, I personally don't like using this term very much. I don't like the idea of accusing people of spreading disinformation because it's assuming intent. And trying to prove somebody else's intent is very, very difficult to do with any degree of certainty. We can't read minds, as nice as that would be. I'm very fond of Hanlon's razor, or at least a, a useful variant of it. It's don't assume malintent when human frailty can account for the same behavior. Uh, impracticality aside, I, I think it's important, I'll, it, it is an important, albeit theoretical, distinction to make, seeing as it entails that the purveyor of disinformation is seen in a different light than the purveyor of just mere misinformation. Now, misinformation is definitely a problematic thing, and its presence is felt in a lot of aspects of life, and most often and often it's implemented in the realm of politics and religion, but it is often used in a lot of propaganda. Propaganda is described as, quote, information, especially of a biased or misleading nature, used to promote or publicize a particular political cause or point of view. Uh, another source described propaganda as being, quote, dissemination of information, facts, arguments, rumors, half-truths, or lies to influence public opinion. Naturally, propaganda is used in a lot of political discourse, and there are a plethora of examples in history where that is the case. However, as you can imagine, propaganda can also be found in a lot of other areas of life, such as in religious discourse. If we look at those definitions carefully, propaganda is focused on this idea of swaying people to agree with you using a carefully selected concoction of facts and or misinformation and fallacious reasoning to get people to agree with you. Now, researchers seem to agree on this idea that propaganda is information that is disseminating, that, that, is, that is trying to elicit an emotional response, often using rhetorical devices and 
often vague definitions of words to try and get people to agree with you. However, as some writers have noted, there isn't a lot of agreement as to what propaganda is. The, it's difficult to define because the line between propaganda and genuine persuasion is, is kind of murky. And for our intents and purposes, I'm, I'm going to be using a more kind of negative view of it to kind of talk about this, this idea of misleading propaganda, where the propaganda is more manipulative, biased, and contains more misinformation than it contains true information. However, generally speaking, propaganda can be used in a lot of different ways. Um, it can either be a, used for positive or negative purposes. Needless to say, though, propaganda is, uh, is, is more focused on this idea of saying what we should think as opposed to how we should think, if that makes sense. For example, let's consider a comment that I on social media that I found recently. Uh, it says, Mormon tithing is paid under duress. No tithing, no temple, no eternal family. And this is an excellent example of propaganda. It's a claim made about the church that attempts to elicit emotional responses. That is a feeling of unfairness. This kind of propaganda and posts that also include this kind of propaganda want us to be distrustful of the church and they want us to, for all intents and purposes, just renounce our membership within it and to go our way and just leave it behind. However, if we take some time to unpack this claim, we, in stringing together the points that it actually brings up, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So for example, I don't pay tithing under duress, or at least I, I certainly don't think I pay tithing under duress. I pay tithing because I love God and I want to give everything that I can to him. I hope that members of my family will do the same, but I recognize that some of them may choose not to. And if they don't want to be around me in celestial glory, then they don't have to be around me. And I don't want to do anything that's going to force them to. And neither will the church. I mean, just think about this for a minute. How could anyone force them to do that? Naturally, more can be said on this topic from a theological perspective. So for instance, according to LDS theology, if someone I love doesn't want to live a celestial life, our scriptures indicate that I will still be able to minister to them and consequently be around them. However, this, is, this example shows how a deeper dive into propaganda claims uh, can expose the kind of half-truths inherent in a lot of these kinds of arguments. By oversimplifying the issue and targeting the emotional responses of the reader, the, the criticism is employing a kind of argument that may cause serious doubt to a genuine believer, in spite of the fact that LDS theology, when studied more deeply, seems to indicate something completely different. So if we're not careful, propaganda can sometimes lead us astray in terms of trying to establish what is true and what is not. But that of course prompts the question, how do we avoid falling victim to misinformation and misleading propaganda. Well, analyzing the data very much like what I did just now can, can prove to be helpful. It's helpful to go back over primary sources and see what different, what different people are saying and then draw conclusions about the data. I've talked about that repeatedly in other articles, so I won't go too deeply into it now. But 
I mean, if we go even go back to the first article I wrote, a pattern of asking questions may also be useful. Asking questions such as, what is the cultural background of the people who are talking about X? Or how has discourse about X shifted over time? Is there ambiguity regarding the sources or what the sources say about X that would be that would benefit from further research? Or is the person I'm listening to omitting important information or focusing um, inappropriately on some information about X in a way that alters the conclusion. We can use tactics like these to analyze information in just about any topic. And while there are definitely benefits from using these techniques when analyzing church history, I really do want to put across this idea that this can be used anywhere. And I hope that the principles I'm teaching can, can enter into your heart in such a way to where they can be applied in just about every discipline of your life. I hope I've been convincing in that regard so that we as critical thinkers or aspiring critical thinkers can arrive at correct conclusions. While we should always be open to being wrong, following these patterns can lead us to be wrong less often. And consequently, we as critical thinkers will be able to resolve more problems in a more practical and powerful way, which is our ultimate goal in the first place. And of course, as you can imagine, and luckily for us, critical thinking is also helpful in discerning what is true and what is not true in regards to propaganda. As it is with information, asking questions can also be useful. And having at least a cursory grasp of the discourse behind the issues at hand can never hurt in a lot of these discussions. And of course, knowing a thing or two about the topics being discussed it, it can become easier for us to understand where people are coming from, wh what biases may be at play, what the information says and what it does not say. And consequently, we're able to discern more clearly through bias and we are able to, we are able to prevent ourselves from making exclusively emotional decisions based on assumptions and things that the data just doesn't support. And uh, honestly, if as I think about it, as someone who has spent a significant amount of detail parsing through arguments for and against the truth claims of the church, I, I found that the prominent thing that brings people out of the church is just assumptions and negative feelings. I, I, I don't say that to be dismissive, but the idea that Joseph Smith used a seer stone for portions of the Book of Mormon's translation process doesn't necessarily bring people out of the church as often as people think. More often than not, it's the assumption that the church leaders lied about their history, or perhaps it's negative feelings that follow thereafter. It might not even be about historical issues. It might even be about current policies that the church holds today. Uh, manipulative propaganda thrives on assumptions, inferences, and fallacious reasoning. To avoid being misled, it's important to understand what our presuppositions or our assumptions are so that we can study them out and not allow our emotions alone to guide our behavior. I mean, feelings are important. We've talked about that in other episodes, but we, in the same sense that we wouldn't want uh, reason alone or the behaviors of, you know, external behaviors to govern us alone, it's not the best idea to allow our feelings or intuition to be the only source of motivation for us to be able to do things. And of course, it's always useful to figure out what the presuppositions of other people are. 
so that you can more easily, again, parse through bias and more effectively talk to them about the important issues at hand. In this series, we've talked about several tools now that can help us identify good information and differentiate it from bad information. And I hope those tools can be useful. In conclusion, kind of a shorter episode today, misinformation runs rampant in just about every corner of our society and manipulative and deceptive propaganda can cause just as many problems. And while I don't want to make it sound like some kind of big conspiracy, I, I, I do think it's important that we as critical thinkers are able to identify what good and bad information is. Luckily for us, there are ways to combat misinformation. And there are ways to protect ourselves from those who would deceive us, either intentionally or otherwise. Critical thinkers have plenty of ways to be able to help them find truth. And with those tools, we can develop the confidence necessary to be able to make decisions and help us accomplish what we want to do and to solve the problems in today's world. And as always, I'm of the opinion that doing so will allow us to be the kind of thinkers and believers God wants us to be. But those are just kind of my initial thoughts on this idea, so thanks for tuning in. As always, it's a privilege to be able to kind of talk with you and share some ideas, and I hope that you find this to be useful. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks, uh, so be sure to stay tuned on that. Again, take a look at some of the other content Fair is going to be putting out over the next few weeks. We've got a lot of exciting things throughout the rest of the year, and even a lot of great and awesome things and awesome projects we're going to be able to do in the upcoming year. So definitely stay tuned for that. But besides that, just be sure to have a fantastic rest of your day.